Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. And we're back. This is our second hour of Interpreter Radio Show, which is brought to you by the Interpreter Foundation, which has a mission to support the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints through scholarship by providing accurate information to the public about the church. The Interpreter Foundation makes available to everyone on the Internet scholarship on a wide variety of topics. You can find those at interpreterfoundation.org. The Interpreter Foundation also defends the church against misunderstandings and statements and writings of critics. Although it does all these things, it is not owned by, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the material the Interpreter Foundation publishes and the contents of our radio show is solely our own responsibility. And this particular hour of the Interpreter Radio Show is sponsored by Kimber Academy, which is a K through 12 private school, which unlike public schools keeps God in the classroom. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students toward faith and morality with quality, engaging curriculum that is of the highest caliber. At Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, but there are many other locations throughout the United States. If you want to find out more about Kimber Academy to see whether or not it is the place for your students, you can call the director in Linden, Utah, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158. Once again, 801-382-7158. Or go to kimberschool.com. That's kimberschool.com. And now we are back with Interpreter Radio. Kevin Christensen with us by phone. John Gee in studio. Mark Johnson in studio, and I'm Martin Tanner. During this segment of our show, we thought we would give some insights into the Book of Mormon and its importance and maybe some tips on, uh, on, on studies. Anyone like to start us off this hour? Mark does. There you go. Hmm. One of the things that um, has really interested me in um, Book of Mormon studies is just trying to understand what kind of people lived in um, the Book of Mormon times and lands. Um, and I think that it, it's such a, a big question, and I think it's honest, you know, quite honestly, I'm not trying to throw any, any shade on the Book of Mormon, but I think to a degree we don't have a good chance in understanding a lot of things about the Book of Mormon because they lived so long ago. They were different people, different cultures, and we're looking at these um, events from the Book of Mormon through our own modern viewpoints and lenses. Um, so if we don't understand the text, that might be, have to be okay. We might have to be okay with that. We might, you know, be forgiving of ourselves and maybe even doubt our doubts to borrow a a phrase if the Book of Mormon seems weird when we're studying it or if we think there's anachronisms in there that we can't explain um, there's just such a disconnect I think between modern and ancient life and you know maybe maybe we'll get overcome that in time but I don't know what do you guys I, think I think one of the genius things about the Book of Mormon is it comes out of a culture that is not only very different than our own, mm -hmm. but it's almost weirder than we can imagine. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there are all kinds of things in there that, in if you're just reading through it, you think, okay, this this is all right. But 
you really stop and think about it is that this is just odd. So, for example, Lamoni talking, or Ammon teaching Lamoni. Lamoni's question, and he says, you know, God dwells in heaven. He says, are the heavens above the earth? Mm-hmm. That is just a, out of our day or Joseph Smith's day, that is the no most one bizarre question. It makes perfect sense from a Mesoamerican point of view, where the gods dwell under the earth. And so when they're asking about heaven, well, is that above the earth? That's not where we typically think of God dwelling. It, but it, it's one of those things that comes out of the Book of Mormon's uh, background that is just completely bizarre. But the genius in the Book of Mormon and the divine translation <coughs> is that you can get spiritual benefit without necessarily understanding all of those details. Now, granted, the more you understand about it, the the more impressive it is and the more it can help you. But the fact that you can gloss over some of the strangest stuff in there and still <laughs> still get uh, spiritual nourishment and experiences from it is an absolutely miraculous thing. I can't do that with, if I hand you an ancient Egyptian religious text, you won't understand a word of it. No. In the standard translations. But you can the Book of Mormon. And I, I think that's one of the nice things about it, you know, speaking as a, being like a, a familiar voice from the dust, as it says. You yeah. know, just there, there is that familiarity to it. Um, and undoubtedly, you know, much of that comes from the, the witness of the Spirit. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd have a chance of understanding the Book of Mormon without, um, at least on a, a level that would be meaningful, understanding the Book of Mormon without the, you know, the, the guidance and the, the help of the Spirit. Um, I think another thing that helps us is the fact that it was given in a um, King James reminiscent, um, you know, voice. We, John's talked about that early modern English, um, you know, as being, you know, part of this Book of Mormon translation. Um, we have, um, you know, very similar um, portions of the Book of Mormon that were given in um, King James English. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of the Isaiah um, chapters, and they're not exactly the same, of course, um, but we do have um, the King James English to help us as a interpretive aid. Um, you know, mm -hmm. We can understand what the Bible means. It helps us understand what the Book of Mormon means. Um, as far as the Isaiah variants go, I don't know if we'd know um, if uh, something in the Book of Mormon was a legit Isaiah variant or not, if it was given in a, a different language um, to begin with that wasn't available to us. The Isaiah, Isaiah variants are an interesting can of worms. Um, <laughs> as Stan Larson's. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. No, it's just, <laughs> uh, no, it's when you, I'm thinking of Don Perry's mm, okay. thick book for, put out by Brill about all the variants in Isaiah between the Dead Sea Scrolls and the mm. Masoretic Text. And they're, there's a lot going on in why those variants show up. And, uh, you know, the fact that the book is an inch thick um, testifies there's a lot to there. And um, there are some things that, uh, there's all kinds of stuff going on there in, in how it, why you have differences between those two Hebrew versions. Mm. Uh, one of the things is that they're both updating the text, making it more modern. They, they do it in different ways in different places. So one of them will leave this archaism in, and the other one will change it. And both of them do it. So, uh, And then there's just plain variant copy variants and, and everything. So this is a... a most of the work that's been done on this in the Book of Mormon hasn't been done right. <laughs> so it's a big, uh, and, and it's a big uh, problem to go talking about what the Book of Mormon is doing in those things without doing your homework. 
That makes sense because, and honestly, Nephi was likening Isaiah, um, you know, for his own purposes. So, you know, like these other um, scribes who were modernizing Isaiah, as you said, you know, updating the language, um, we find Nephi perhaps with similar motives, you know, adapting the, the text as, you know, as he saw fit. So if there are differences, maybe it's not necessarily a variant. It's just something that Nephi was... You know, improving on in his uh, his mind. I hesitate to because we don't have all of the, um, you know, the earliest manuscript of Isaiah we have is from the Dead Sea Scrolls, right. and and it doesn't go back as far as Nephi. I hesitate to attribute that to Nephi out of ignorance. Yeah, <laughs> so we just don't know, and so but but those are important questions uh, uh, to to look at great kevin yeah well i had a kind of a breakthrough moment on my mission i i read the book of mormon at least three times before my mission and probably five times during my mission and so i and all of that was just basically gospel reading just reading the text as it was reading it through the eyes of my own culture and being impressed and giving my testimony and being out there on a mission and i had an investigator who was reading uh Mosiah, uh, you know, one to five about King Benjamin's discourse. And he said to me that he said he didn't buy it. It wasn't plausible. I said, well, what's wrong with it? And he said, well, let's see. He gives this sermon and it says everyone's converted. And he said, people aren't like that. Some people wouldn't have, would have held back. And so I was 20 years old and <laughs> all I could say was, well, it was a good speech. But I kept the question in mind. And then about a year later, another member said to me, I think you'd like this book. And he handed me uh Hunibly's an approach to the Book of Mormon that, that I later found out had been the priesthood manual for the church in 1957. So I took it home on a P-Day, and while my companion was writing letters, I took it to the tub and thought I'd read the interesting chapters, and so I, I read the whole book. <laughs> One of the chapters, chapters 23, was called Old World Ritual in the New World, and he goes through King Benjamin's discourse as a coronation ceremony. I'd been to state conference. I'd been to even general conference. And so when I, that was my background, I'd look at King Benjamin's discourse and I'd, my framework was what I'd done, what I'd seen. And well, you know, I had to start with something, so I had to start with what I have. But reading that chapter especially opened my eyes to the idea that the ancients were ancient. They were different. And he showed that there was 20 things, 27 things that happened in order in a coronation ceremony. And there they are happening in King Benjamin's discourse. And one of them was this moment called the Eclamatio, where everyone is supposed to fall down to the ground and make a covenant to the king. And so that's when I realized that the, this guy's question was wrong. It was, it, it's, not, it's not what I would expect. The question we should be asking ourselves is, what should I expect? And that's when Jesus says you have to start by being self-critical. You have to look at the being for your own eye, and then shall you see clearly. So reading that chapter, that was taking a beam out of my own eye. Then I could look at it in an ancient way and see things that I had not imagined were going on. I already liked King Benjamin's discourse, but I wasn't seeing it as a coronation ritual. And then later, uh, Farms put out that magnificent volume on King Benjamin's discourse where they go through the, you know, the, the, the covenant ceremony that Stephen Ricks did, and then uh, Welch and, uh, uh, did the one on, uh, uh, on the, the combined festivals so before the exile, there was the Day of Atonement, Feast of the Tabernacles, Sabbath year, and Jubilee were all combined into the same festival, and all of that is going on in King Benjamin's discourse. So it just keeps getting better and better and better and more impressive to me the more that I learn this. So we can start with just that surface reading, but we don't have to stop there. And since uh, you know, I, I've read that on my mission in like 1975, and I've learned then farm started up a few years later and I was able to get, you know, involved with that very quickly and start reading all these other things, you know, like uh, that was where I first got access to John Sorensen's little essay called uh, The Book of Mormon as a Mesoamerican Codice. And then you start to see different things that you can't see from just the old world point of view. And then all of this, these incredible scholars coming in and making their contributions with this years and years of specialized training no, even more re recently, like um, Matthew Bowman's doing the things where he looks at the, uh, the Hebrew meaning of the names, how that opens up wordplay that's going on in the text. So there are levels of artistry 
that you just can't see unless you know what's going on. But these resources are here, and we don't have to spend a whole lifetime preparing ourselves. We have people who have done that for us and shared it as part of their own faith and consecration. And we have websites like uh, you know, Interpreter and Book of Mormon Central where they, they put this stuff together for us. So we don't have to settle for the surface reading. And and there are things that are unsettled, certainly. Yeah, and there, there's debates going on, of course, but... Uh, it's so impressive that I, you know, that the fact that there are open questions on some issues and debates on other, other issues shouldn't obscure the fact that, that the amount of really impressive scholarship has, you know, compared to when I started, I think I could have put, you know, what I would call the good stuff might be half a shelf. And my personal library, which isn't everything, you know, covers a whole wall just about. So it's this, multiplication of knowledge that helps us get more and more out of it. And there's always the sense that there's more to see. You know, it's not like, okay, I've read this one book by Nibley and now it's exhausted the possibilities. It's it's uh, just opened up this whole new area of discovery of, of appreciation for what's in there, that it's more impressive than I could have possibly imagined. Even, you know, even all that I'd been taught. And when you go from just passively sitting and letting people tell you about it and go to with your own inquiries and saying, what else is in there? What else have I been missing? And if you have this hunger and thirst for the scholarship and the insights that other people have put out there, then the excitement of having your mind expanded and your soul enlarged by this is just exactly what Alma's describing. You know, it it gets so exciting. You want to, to get more and it tastes delicious and you want to share it with friends and family. Absolutely. I Great, great comments. Thanks for sharing those. I, I had a couple of aha moments uh, in connection with the Book of Mormon that, that I wanted to share briefly because they were both really impactful on me, but they also sort of illustrate the point that we all, if we have a question, instead of saying, oh, no, I don't have an answer for this, therefore none of it's true, and I'm going to leave the church, and I you know, throw everything out, uh, you know, set it on the shelf and kind of wait, and in all likelihood, af- after a while, your questions will be answered. I mean, that, that happened with B.H. Roberts in his studies of the Book of Mormon, you know, almost everything that's in there we've got answers for now, but some of those were serious questions for him. But I, I remember uh, reading the second verse in the Book of Mormon, Yea, I make a record in the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. And I thought, what is this talking about? How is that even possible? And and then I remember being on a mission several years later in Japan and thinking, wait a minute, that's what happened with Japanese. They didn't have any language in about 600 A.D., and they sent these scholars down to China, and they got their entire writing system, which is Chinese, and they worked out this whole writing system for the Japanese language. And so there's one set of writing that was adapted to a different language, and I thought this this kind of makes sense. Then much, much, much later, I, I read and talked to, John, who's here in studio, and he explained a whole bunch more stuff about, yeah, this happens all the time. You see, you know, Hebrew documents that are written in Egyptian and vice versa. I, and it, 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 if you set something on the shelf and, and just kind of wait, the, the, the answers will, will come. Another one that's, uh, th- that really had a big impact on me, you know, maybe... Maybe I think about things too much, but I remember reading the story of Ammon, you know, and he's, he's uh, saving the king's flocks, and the bad guys come rushing at him, and as many of them came, he, you know, like hacks off their arms. And I'm thinking, what? Why didn't he stab them? You know, why didn't he, why didn't he stab them? What's, what's this hacking off their arms? And then they, the, the, the guys he's with just, pick him up in a big bundle and take him over to the king. And I thought, this is the weirdest story I have ever heard. I don't remember anybody ever winning a battle at Iwo Jima and picking up a bunch of arms to take back to their battalion commanders. Yeah, look what we did. You know, it just, 
That is just not a Western thought. And then years later, I, I saw an LDS scholar who had um, astutely shown a, a painting, the, the market of Tilatelico, if I'm probably butchering that. But the gist of it was that it was a detail uh, from Aztec times by Diego Rivera, who, who uh, was born in the late 1800s, who was known for meticulously doing all this research. And in this, it's in the National Museum of Mexico City. And if you look at a detail of this, you've got this warrior, and he's got this severed arm. And he's kind of, I, I mean, the contents is, 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 is a little off color here. He's, he's, tr he's uh, trying to proposition a, a hooker, you know, by trading her favors for this severed arm. And, and so you think, well, okay, then it's not that crazy. I guess this kind of a thing really happened. Severed arms had value. They were battle trophies. They were obviously used in other things. And since then, of course, you know, you can find similar comments in the Old Testament, but just because something is counterintuitive to us with our Western values and our times that we find in the Book of Mormon, these kinds of things ultimately are some of the most amazing um, evidences of the authenticity of the book, because who would make this up? Joseph Smith wouldn't make this up. I know. I'm going to have a story about elephants and horses and severed arms. You know, that's just, no one would do that. These are the kinds of things that truth is, is stranger than fiction. And, and when those, and I could give other examples, but those two had a huge impact on me. And I remember thinking this, I knew it before, but this has been really reinforced. This is the real deal. This is a true, true story, and this is remarkable. Yeah. You might have some more information about severed arms and <laughs> oh, here you go. Oh, and the, t tell our readers you're, you uh, can't you can't show the screen okay. on the radio. I can't have show the screen on the radio. No. Yeah. So tell people uh, what you're showing a, me. This is a, a South Arabian altar with uh, people coming back from battle carrying severed arms and bows in the other hand. Um, uh, really nice little um, uh, example of this. And you have lots of this in, in Egypt where they cut off the hand and they've found this archeologically. And what's funny is to watch the debates over the people of where they found a whole of this pit right outside the palace door this deposit of all of these severed hands. And, and they're comparing it with the Egyptian reliefs and war trophies, and you actually get people who say, no, no, they didn't do that. They didn't. <laughs> this, this isn't the, an actual archaeological example of that. And, and thinking, um... Yes, they did. <laughs> why wouldn't you think that? Um, yeah. So... Uh, it's yeah, that's symbolic then is what you're saying. Well, well, what they, yeah, you have to, it's, there are slight differences in the culture and in the mm. Egyptian, it's the way you kept track of the dead. Mm. You say, I killed somebody and I had to prove it. Here's the hand. Here's the hand. Um, and you get rewarded for it, which is similar to the Aztec one. Mm. Uh, so probably we, we ought to talk in this, our last half hour about, um, Ways to study the Book of Mormon. Um, so I thought maybe I'd talk a little bit about editions. So there are a lot, uh, amazingly, a lot of different study editions of the Book of Mormon that have come out. Um, but if you think about it, the one the church puts out is actually a study edition. So it has notes on dates at the bottom of the page. It has cross-references. It has extensive indices in, at the back of the Book of Mormon. Um, it's really the be best 
study edition I know of. Um, you and for those of you who get value out of the other editions, that's fine. Uh, the most important thing is to read the text of the Book of Mormon, and so the and there are lots of different ways to do it. You can go look for certain phrases. You can use the church's website, um, which will has some search functions on it. Um, you can get word cruncher uh, and do the same thing. You can do all kinds of, of say, searching for phrases. You can look at how you can read it through in the, the story. If you haven't read it through, read it through, get the story down. Because if you, hunting and pecking and looking for things, if you don't know the story, it means you're going to have a hard time understanding any scripture that somebody gives you in context. So number one, read it. Um, and then let your study grow. I, I would recommend letting your study grow organically out of that. You're reading along and you hit something that looks like it's, you'd like to know more about it. And so go check out the footnotes, go in the cross references, go look for other, say you're intrigued by this use of phrase. Uh, it turns out some of the phrases um, are idiosyncratic to certain authors. Uh, they're the only ones, you know, Lamb of God is pretty much a, a Nephi thing. Uh, fruit of my loins is pretty much Joseph of Egypt. Those those sorts of things you can you can find that out by looking your own. And you don't have to take somebody else's study track if they. Uh, you can just do your own. Um, President Nelson recommends going in and looking at how. Uh, about the different roles of Christ in the Book of Mormon. And there are lots of different things that you can do, but use that for your own need, and you don't need to spend more than three bucks to get a good edition of the Book of Mormon. I would say, um, for those of you looking for interesting ways to study the Book of Mormon, um, I would look at reading it with an eye towards the Bible and how um, the, the Book of Mormon authors go back and reuse, if, if you'll allow the word, um, biblical materials, how um, the stories of the Bible and you know, their, their concepts and their ideas you know, will pop up in the Book of Mormon. Um, one of the things that is, and, and not, just, not just look at them um, or catalog them, because that, that's been done, um, but like, look at why, you know, why someone, you know, an author is using, you know, a, a different story to bring to mind, you know, um, you know, or to, to, to highlight their own, their own circumstances. I'm thinking of like Nephi, for instance, how, when he was, um, slaying Laban, how Nephi draws on, uh, David and Goliath and, and that imagery there, um, we can look at, you know, not just the, the differences that are between those two stories, but also, they're not the similarities, but also the differences between those two stories. Um, you know, keep an eye out for these, these differences in the way, the way things are told. Um, just like an example, and this is New Testament, but, you know, we, we see a lot of, you know, parallels between the synoptic gospels. Um, and a lot of people look at, you know, trying to harmonize, you know, why or harmonize the, the details to come up with a, you know, quote-unquote, more accurate story of Jesus, you know, perhaps our time would be better spent looking at the differences, you know, trying to decide why Luke, you know, decided to emphasize one thing where, you know, Matthew decided to, you know, maybe exclude that and, and highlight something else instead. Um, you know, why, what, what's important to them in that, in that narrative, in that, in that relating of Jesus's, um, you know, the stories of his life. Why, why is one more important than the, the other to it, a different author? Um, and you can really, um, by looking at these differences, kind of, you know, better, maybe you know, perhaps understand the, the mindset of these, these you know, ancient authors uh, a little bit better. So, you know, if we see um, 
you know, Nephi drawing on the, the story of David and Goliath, you know, why is he doing that? You know, what, what's different about that story, you know, that he's using? What, what are similarities? You know, is David or is Nephi saying, you know, he's, he's, he's just as good as David or is, is there something else involved? Is David, you know, you know the, the, the example Nephi is going for or you know, is he placing more emphasis on, on overcoming Goliath in this story? You know, and you know what does that what does that signify then if he's if Nephi's beating his uh, his own version of Goliath? Kevin, your thoughts on well, steady I think, approach? Yeah, I agree that uh, you have to start out with getting it in your head first, reading it a few times, and just just going through. But then, uh, and then, kind of follow the questions that most interest you. But um, I find that it's it's important to stand on the shoulders of giants because you can see further. And this is like the experience that I had reading Nibley that opened my eyes so much and then pointed and Nibley pointed me to other people and that led to other books and then occasionally uh, go out and read some, something else, you know, something very different. Uh, like I read, uh, I saw several LDS scholars, including Nibley would refer to a book by uh, Eliade called, uh, Cosmos and History, The Myth of Eternal Return, and that turned out to cast a lot of light on what's going on in Third Nephi, that I, if I hadn't read the book, I simply would not have seen it. And there's a, there's a book by Robert Alter called The Art of Biblical Narrative that uh, has changed the way I read the Book of Mormon. Uh, Alan Goff was the one who pointed that out. There's uh, sometimes just, uh, I remember when the Jack Welch's article came out in the uh, in the new era when I was a kid, you know, about this poetic forms in the Book of Mormon. And then since then, you know, Perry's done a lot of work and several other people pointed out not just chiasms, but other kinds of parallelism and uh, what Matthew Bowman has been doing with with uh, the Hebrew meanings of names and how that casts light on wordplay in the stories. And the, so there's all sorts of different approaches. But I think, you know, you have to find something that you can get passionate and interested in because that will help you you know, motivate you to to reach further and to not just passively sit and accept what's there, what's you know, obvious on the surface. You know, but we, you have to start with a foundation and then build on that. And don't don't just settle for that. You know, that, that you, okay, now I've got a foundation. <laughs> Let's build something beautiful on that and uh, come up with something unexpected. You know, like when I uh, when I picked up the Great Angel <laughs> in the Dallas bookstore. You know, I had no idea what I was getting into other than, you know, Martin had quoted it in a, one of his book reviews and, and the, the quote stuck in my head. So some, some of our listeners and, probably you know, don't know what The Great Angel is. Give a little more background. Ah, okay. Well, The Great Angel is a book by Margaret Barker. She's a, she's a British scholar who was interested in trying to figure out the origins of Christianity. She says, how do you get from the sacrifice of, of animals in the Old Testament to the sacrifice of one said to be the Son of God? in the New Testament, and how do you bridge the gap? And when she went to, she studied at Cambridge, and basically they treated the Old Testament and the New Testament as separate categories. So after she got her degree, she just, she didn't carry on, but she studied on her own, and eventually she realized that if you wanted to really understand uh, the origins of Christianity, you had to go back and reconstruct first Temple Judaism. That is, you had to go back and figure out what was going on in 600 B.C., and that period. So she did this massive reconstruction and using all of her language skills and she's a very impressive scholar. And then she wrote her, her first nine books. And then we showed up and realized that the picture she was describing was the Book of Mormon. And when she read it, she agreed. So it, it's something that uh, was completely unexpected. She didn't expect us and we didn't expect her, but there's all of this light that comes out of it. So uh, and it's, it's not just Margaret, it's, it's, it's several other people, but it's, I'm, I'm wanting to convey the idea that um, you, can, you can just periodically, you'll, you'll get a hint, you know, like I, I'd, I'd read the quote so that when I saw the book, I recognized it on the shelf, you know, the, and, and follow it up, take the book off the shelf and go home and read it and then come back to the Book of Mormon with that new insight and you'll be able to see more. And this, this happened when I'd read Nibley, when I read Sorensen, when I read Gardner, and it's literally, literally hundreds of LDS scholars with expertise that I do not have, but they will share with me. And they'll 
spend years and years working on an approach and put it in a book and then I can I can get that in a few hours and that will that lifts up my own reading. So to use and appreciate what we've got. And that's why you reckon, you know, the interpreter, that's why I'm involved with them and why I love sites like Book of Mormon Central where you can just go and sample and what whatever your own question or point of interest happens to be, see what they've got. And that will point you to something else. And that will point you to something else and that will open your eyes and then you'll see something else. So this is this idea that uh, when the fruit starts, you know, putting out shoots and roots and branches that you had no idea were there. That's when it really gets exciting and faith-promoting, and that's when your cause to believe gets bigger and enlarges, expands your mind and enlarges your soul and, and starts uh, giving something to be more passionate about instead of this, you know, this is this cultural artifact fact that we just kind of grew up with that we shouldn't take for granted. And the best way to, to uh, <clears throat> really appreciate it is just to explore it, to use it, to test it, to try it out, to, to try look at it with different eyes sometimes, and uh, and to be surprised by what's in there, and to be astounded, and sometimes have your own interpretation change radically. So I've I've had that happen over and over again, and it's it's one of the things that I love most about scholarship is just being able to new, see new things in what I thought I knew well. Great comments. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. One of the things that I wanted to add here is some sources where people can go to get answers to criticisms about the Church or the Book of Mormon. And one of those, Kevin, you just mentioned, and, and that's uh, Book of Mormon Central. They have some great information, and a lot of it is just suited for young people today, you know, it's like three minutes long. <laughs> and um, it's, it's short, and you can get some great information. <clears throat> they also have longer scholarly things. Uh, the Interpreter Foundation is, is a great source. And in, in addition, years and years ago, Jack Welch had what was known as the Criticisms Project, and he was trying to list every single criticism that had ever been leveled against the Book of Mormon and the Church, and they were trying to you know, write uh, a, a short, little, succinct, scholarly response to it all. Well, that has sort of uh, morphed over time into a website called FairLatterdaySaints.org, on which you can find many, many, many tens of thousands of, of answers uh, to questions about the Book of Mormon, about the witnesses, about Joseph Smith, about church history, and, and so forth. So those... Those are some good resources that, that you might want to take a look at. Another good source is one that Mark has here, which is Grant Hardy's new uh, Oxford edition of the Book of Mormon, which had some interesting articles and some, some great footnotes and, and things that you won't find in some other editions. But there are some great sources. One, one of the things, though, to do with the Book of Mormon is realize, however, that this is not a scholarly uh, translation of an ancient work. This is one that was done, as Joseph Smith said, by the gift and power of God. One of the big uh, bashes that I had early on was with a former Mormon who had run into a bunch of scholarship who said, I could never believe in the Book of Mormon because it talks about Jesus Christ before the time of Christ. And it talks about baptism before Christianity. And I said, well, why is that a problem? Well, because there just wasn't one. And, they, you know, if it said Messiah, I could buy that. And, and I said, well, wait a minute. Don't most Christians think that Jesus was the Messiah? And so how is that? not an acceptable translation. And you, you have many other examples, like with the Dead Sea Scrolls community, the, the, the Essenes who had mikvah ritual cleansing as, as part of their entrance into their community, part of, part of their uh, way that they joined that particular Jewish sect. These are all kinds of things that could reasonably be translated the way they have been in, in the Book of Mormon. And I don't see 
any problem with any of the translations that we have in the Book of Mormon, whether it be Jesus before Christianity or baptism before Christianity. If you look at them as a fair representation for Latter-day Saint Christians of, um, of, of what's being described there, I, I, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. Um, other comments, gentlemen. We've got, we've got we've got about fifteen minutes left here. Any other insights and ways to ways to study the Book of Mormon? One of the things that really had an impact on me that I, I highly recommend it. You can buy a first edition facsimile of the Book of Mormon from the Nauvoo store, from a bunch of other places. <clears throat> um, for a very nominal price. And it made a big difference to me when I sat down once and over a weekend just read the Book of Mormon as it was originally published without all the chapters and verses and footnotes and everything, just in the narrative form. I thought, this is so amazing. This is so cool. This is so wonderful. It, it just, it, it had... I'm not sure if I can describe exactly what it did for me, but it 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 made me feel a little bit like the early Latter-day Saints did when they read it and how Joseph Smith and the others would have seen it as it first came off the presses. I, and I just love that experience because it was um, more of a narrative form. I, well, I'm not going to... Uh, quibble with that one. I still read it out of the 1830 reproduction. <laughs> um, and it is a different experience. It even, um, much as I really like Royal Skousen's work, I still prefer to read it in the 1830. Uh, and if not that, then, um, then the church's recent publication. Uh, Sometimes reading it in a different language is useful. Um, for me, one of the things I didn't get very far reading it in Arabic, but one of the things that really made a big impression is that uh, when I read it, it, read the introduction in Arabic and read the story, read the witness accounts, is how much they use the word see and know and that they this is something that they really emphasized and that had never struck me before so sometimes reading in a foreign language can help um, a friend of mine um, uh, I won't get into the details but ended up reading the Book of Mormon um, Ten times over the course of, I think it was three months. Uh, and suddenly he was able to make connections he'd never thought of before because he had read it so intensively. Uh, and other times you just want to slow down. I had another friend who read the Book of Mormon looking up every single cross-reference. Mm. And so the... I don't know that there is a best way to read the Book of Mormon. Uh, I don't know that there's a bad way to do it. There probably are. I just can't think of any. Um, and, but reading it and reading it consistently. Um, I know some people who, they may not be able to tell you what they read that day. But they read it every day, and they notice the difference in the way it makes them feel. And, and the Book of Mormon can do that for you. So that's another different way to uh, read and explore the Book of Mormon. Uh, Elder Maxwell used to look for particular phrases. And more than reading it straight through, he would go look at topics or go look at at phraseology uh, in the Book of Mormon and that's also a good way to do it um, 
Uh, Mark, any other ideas? Um, if you really want a challenge, um, read it with young children. That's what I'm in the middle of right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and it's, it's not just um, trying to understand the, the message of the Book of Mormon while a six-year-old and an eight-year-old are hitting each other with empty wrapping paper tubes, um, which is a, a, a challenge in its own right. Um, Reenacting the battles. Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm hoping they're doing. Um, no, no arm trophies yet, though, luckily. So that's a good thing. Um, but the, just the, the challenge and kind of the, the fun and innovation of explaining something that, you know, you're, you're probably taking for granted because you've read, you know, for decades, you know, previous to now, you know, and you've grown up with, you know, um, trying to explain that to uh, a fresh mind, you know, to someone who's experiencing it for the first time. Um, there really is um, a, a, a lot of value that I found this, this uh, current go-through um, because we've got our, our kids reading it with us or at least experiencing that to one degree or another. And just the necessity of distilling ideas down um, into something that, you know, they will pick up on. And unfortunately, they've been um, exceeding my expectations, at least, and coming up with, you know, interesting questions and interesting observations that I, you know, maybe hadn't given them credit for. So it's, uh, it's been a blessing. One of the other things I would probably recommend is read it so um, you can have the spirit in your home. One of the things mm -hmm. that I believe the benefits of the Come, Follow Me program are, you know, not only are we you know, responsible now for, you know, our own education and not, you know, the, the brethren or, you know, our, our ward level, you know, teachers and stuff responsible for teaching us. Now it's all, it's now put on us. And, and fortunately, um, what goes along with that is we get to have the spirit in our home and we get to have that as, as part of our lives. And, you know, that, that has been um, such a blessing and such a, a benefit in, in my home, at least, um, being able to you know, experience that, that peace and that comfort when the rest of the world is just, you know, nutty out there. Um, it's, uh, it's really been a blessing and, um, that's, that's what I, I'd probably recommend, you know, read it, read it for the spirit, you know, read it, uh, to be close to God. Kevin, any final thoughts? Yeah, this, well, that it, it's, it's been something that I grew up with. I, you know, I grew up LDS in, in Utah, so it was as conventional an upbringing as it can get. <clears throat> and I remember in uh, ninth grade seminary, we took the Book of Mormon and I had to, you know, just kind of plowed through it. And uh, did it again later as I approached my mission. And then it was going through for the third time. Uh, just reading it in the basement of my house in, in Utah, just as my mission was coming. I just wanted to get it, get through it again. And I came to uh, the chapter in Ether where Moroni comes in and he says, And then shall you know that I have seen Jesus Christ. And he spake with me face to face in plain humility as a man speaketh to his friend. And that was the moment when I got my testimonies, where it, I just was struck by the reality of that occasion and also the significance of that occasion that, that Jesus you know, Jehovah, the creator of the world, would speak to one of his prophets in plain humility, just in that intimate, knowing fashion. And that, to me, was was a revelation of something of the nature of Christ and how he cares about us as individuals. And it, that stuck with me. But I, I didn't stay there at that moment. You know, I talked about that. That was before my mission. That was before I got into scholarship at, at all and before I'd read anything significant, really, about the Book of Mormon you know, in terms of uh, the power of the scholarship that we have. But just that moment where you, you get your testimony, but then there's so much more to gain from it and so much more to learn from it that, that it's, it can just... Uh, <clears throat> don't waste the, you know, the opportunity to, to let it expand your mind and enlarge your soul and, and expand your horizons of, of what's there and to be more and more astonished by the miracle that we have the thing at all. And the story of Joseph Smith and the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, it's an astounding story. And if you grow up with it, it, it can be easy to take it for granted unless you refresh it in some way and look at us and get it from a slightly different angle. 
No, like you know, saying is uh, like Mark was just saying, you know, talking to kids about it because they're going to see it with different eyes than you do, and you'll see it through their eyes for a few moments. Or investigators that have questions, or, or again, scholars who have trained themselves and are seeing things in there that uh, that we haven't seen, or you know, sometimes even wrestling with critics sometimes, which you know I've, I've done quite a bit of over the years, but. You know, I did it when I was did it. I was prepared. So, <laughs> if you're prepared, you, you shall not fear. He says, but if you're not prepared, then you might have some trouble. So, to know about the resources, you know, like the Book of Mormon Central, like Fair, which is a marvelous uh, resource uh, interpreter and these things, that to be able to have these giants whose shoulders you can stand on, along with getting your own testimony. Wonderful comments. Um... Any final thoughts? We can wrap it up here. Well, we actually haven't heard much from you, Martin. What do, what do you <laughs> recommend on this? It, it, well, sure. I I like reading um, the actual storyline, and I love that for all the scriptures. I, I have to admit I have never said to myself, hmm, I'm going to start at Genesis 1 and read through Malachi. I have not done that. But I have read all the way through the New Testament, and it's had a great impact on me. And reading the Book of Mormon just as a narrative without chasing down little footnotes has, has just, as I've mentioned, has, has had a great impact. But as questions come up, the whole idea of, like, like I said before, setting them aside and finding some scholarly source uh, we have so much available now that, that answers questions like this. Don't believe a critic. Most of the critics, frankly, are idiots. There are some who are, I shouldn't say that. There are some that are well-meaning. There are a lot of them that are just shallow and haven't done their homework. And so it's very easy to get some good information that's responsive and, and faith-promoting. And once you have a solid testimony, of the Book of Mormon and its authenticity, you can always find something that will help you respond to some weird, obs obscure um, quote, quote that's happened. And I, I, one other thing that I don't, well, it's been brought up, but just, just peripherally is, is that um, the Book of Mormon is now available electronically in print and in a whole bunch of different ways and you can study it in ways that were never possible before you can study it by words you can find key words you can find how many times the word nephi appears or the word baptism or any other word that you want you can study by topics you can study by baptism by faith by anything you want you you can there are so many tools that if you want to study something that you think will make a difference in your life, there are ways to do it now that were never, ever available before. For Book of Mormon scholarship, this is sort of the golden era. It, we live in a wonderful time, and I'll, I'll kind of leave it with that. All right, let's... We've got two minutes. We, we, we do. Let's, um, let's wrap things up, though, unless somebody has... a parting shot or a parting comment parting sh a parting shot what well you're doing a great job <laughs> read the book of mormon that's my parting shot there, there you go read the book it's of mormon. true all right well with that let's let's wrap things up uh kevin christensen mark johnson john gee thank you so much for being here today um, martin tanner i'm telling you all who are listening thank you for listening and join us again each sunday evening from 7 to 9 p.m. live on, on the internet for Interpreter Radio. Have a good night, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>